When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. I like, like many of you, I like to look back on some of my favorite tanks over the years, and they have some interesting commonalities. Generally, these include things like certain elements used in the operating system of the aquarium. Though, uh, you know, the aquariums are all different, they have common threads which make them operate very similarly to the natural habitats which they aspire to replicate in the aquarium. Now, what do I mean? Well, let me explain. The idea of biotope aquariums is pretty well covered territory in the hobby. I don't really need to discuss the whole concept with you. However, the idea of biotope or biotope-inspired aquariums should be, in my humble opinion, more than just trying to capture the look of habitat. The finest biotope-inspired systems foster the function as much as they do the aesthetics. And when we approach recreating some of these habitats from a function forward approach, as opposed to just trying to recreate the look, not only do you create an interesting operational parameter set, you get many unusual benefits as well, some of which are analogous to those which the natural environment offers to the organisms which reside there. And of course, the aesthetics often look substantially different than what you get when you just go diorama mode. So you end up with cool aesthetics anyway. One of my favorite uh, types or themes of aquariums is a, is a uh, something that represents sort of unusual niches. Uh, and one of my favorite niches, uh, it was represented in an aquarium I did earlier in the year when I represented the form and function of a flooded Pantanal grassland. Now, this was a really different interpretation of this pretty unique, you know, ecological system than I've ever done. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, the Pantanal, derived from the Portuguese word pantano, meaning swamp, wetland, or marsh, is the largest wetlands region on Earth, full stop. It's primarily located within the Brazilian state of Mato Grosso do Sul. It also extends into the state of Mato Grosso and the nations of Paraguay and Bolivia as well. We're talking about a region estimated to be as large as 75,000 square miles. It's about 195,000 square kilometers. It's freaking huge. Essentially, it's a large depression in the Earth's crust, and the Pantanal constitutes a huge river delta in which a number of rivers converge, depositing sediments and other biological materials into the area. Now, of course, with a habitat this large, there are multiple ecosystems contained within it. As many as 12 have been defined by ecological scientists. Now, our main focus is, of course, fishes, and the Pantanal offers plenty of places for fishes to reside in. The cool thing about the Pantanal is that as much as 80% of its floodplains submerge during the rainy season, in which up to 59 inches, that's 1,500 millimeters, of rainfall have been recorded. That corresponds to water depths, which can be as high as 15 feet or 5 meters in some areas, and it's home to an astonishing diversity of fishes and aquatic plants. I hear that? Aquatic plants. So with its enormous expanse of shallow, slowly flowing water, with the velocities of no more than 4 inches or 10 centimeters per second, Dense vegetation tends to be the norm here, both aquatic and terrestrial. The water itself tends to be turbid, very slightly tinted, and perhaps even a bit anoxic at times. And interestingly, the highest levels of pH and dissolved oxygen in these waters tend to occur when the water level decreases and aquatic and terrestrial plant growth is stimulated. I guess that makes sense. Curiously, however, 
scientists are not 100% certain if this is because the plants are growing, you know, like crazy with the photosynthesis or just simply because of mixing of the water column due to an influx of water. Now, is there a takeaway for hobbyists here? Um, well, over 400 fish species call this region home. And interestingly, the biological keystone species of the Pantanal is a snail, the apple snail, which is the family Ampularidae, which is a real survivor, uh, has both gills and lungs, which makes survival possible during the early part of the flood season when huge amounts of terrestrial plants decay and use up the available oxygen, resulting in suffocation to all of the larger decomposers in the ecosystem. This thing's a real survivor. It's a remarkable and fortunate adaptation, and it enables the humble snail to consume the majority of the dead plant matter and turn it into fertilizer for the aquatic plants. And in an ultimate sort of insult, really, the snails eventually become food for other animals. Kind of an undignified end for such an important creature, wouldn't you say? Now, many of the fishes that are found in the Pantanal are migratory. They move seasonally between the river channels and the floodplain regions. And as you might imagine, the bulk of them are detritivores, feeding on the fine particles from the accumulated sediments and, uh, sediments and macrophytes, remember that term, uh, within the ecosystem. Macrophytes supply shelter, food resources, and cover for all these fishes. And still other fishes consume the aquatic insects and the microorganisms and biofilms that are recruited in this habitat. Most are pretty well adapted to the relatively oxygen-poor waters of this huge floodplain. Kerosens are represented big time here, with species of Moncalcia, Hyphosobricon, Pyrolina, Aphiocarax, and Caricidium all present. Uh, oh, and Episto lovers, you'll be pleased to know that there's some cool ones found there. Epistogramma borrelii, Epistogramma trifasciata, Epistogramma cambrae, and some others. Even species as wide-ranging as, and as diverse as like Corydoras and Crencicla, Otosinculus, Ebramites, and Leporinus are found in this ecosystem. There's a lot of really cool fish found there. Now, according to most of the studies I read on the ecosystem, the contributing factors to this population include stuff like the clarity of the water, the abundance of the food sources, and the connections between lakes and rivers. And as the water recedes, the available macrophytes tend to settle on the margins of the habitat to form a sort of, well, wait for it, aggregation of detritus. There's just too much good stuff here, huh? And during the low water seasons, the resident fishes tend to occupy the areas where autochthonous resources, materials formed in the areas where they are found, not from outside of the habitat, like allochthonous resources, uh, accumulate. Now, we talk about some really obscure shit in this podcast, don't we? Of course, the seasonal flooding of the marginal lowlands increases the quantity and the availability of allochthonous feeding resources for the floodplains and the fishes which reside there because all the plants that grow there. An interesting example is the tight relationship between the various habitats in the region, isn't it? Now, when the water levels rise, the marginal vegetation in these habitats dies off and it contributes to the levels of organic matter found in the water. This results in a decreased level of dissolved oxygen, lower pH, and transparency of the water column. Now, those of you who are really geeky, hardcore type, you know, biotope enthusiasts who obsess over stuff like creating a tank to represent a habitat in a specific time period should take note because certain seasons of the year, the habitat is highly, you know, highly uh, different than it is in other seasons. A lot of contrast. Even the lifestyles of the fishes play a role in the operating system of this environment. Biologists tend to think that the small guys, the kerosens specifically, benefit from fast growth, high fecundity, and rapid colonization capabilities. And these characteristics tend to determine success in the Pantanal environment. And one more example of this role of the fishes in the Pantanal, which consume fruits, uh, which come from the trees in the adjacent wetlands, uh, is evident. 
around 150 species of fruit-eating fishes inhabit this system. That's a remarkable number. When the fishes eat the fruits, they pass the seeds by, you know, pooping. So amazingly, it's thought that they're responsible for the dispersal as much as 95% of the trees which comprise tropical forests of the region. That's literally the definition of doing useful shit, in my opinion. This habitat is just filled with possibilities for replication in the aquarium. Now, the fact that we don't do a lot of these is makes it, you know, perfect ground for uh, hobbyists to study, observe, and discover new things about this this area for the hobby. The work on replicating some of the function of the habitat as well as the form is just irresistible to me. Okay, so we touched on the habitat enough to at least whet your appetite, maybe do a little more research and go beyond what I'm talking about here. And that's kind of what we're going to do. Let me, let, me, uh, let me give you a little more ideas of how I played with it. Now, the ingredients are readily available and it starts with a sedimented bottom layer and, you know, replete with leaves and some terrestrial grasses. Maybe twigs or even some submerged pieces of dried weeds. Not only not not only helps create the look of the of the ecosystem, it fosters the function as well as these materials break down. That's the easy part of the whole thing. It's hardly revolutionary or even crazy. Yet to attempt to replicate one of these complex natural habitats in the aquarium requires us to look ourselves in the mirror and see if we're up to the challenges, aesthetic and otherwise. It looks weird. It involves ideas that we've touched on here for years decomposition, fungi, turbidity, and mental shifts. Had enough of the shit or are you thirsty for more? I submit to you the idea of a turbid, sediment-filled aquarium where dead branching materials, decomposing leaves, twigs, biofilms, clay, soil, and silt all play together. This type of feature really pushes us out of our comfort zone. You have silty sediment and material which, when disturbed, will cloud the water a bit for possibly even days at a time. Sort of like what happens in nature except it's in your own living room. Can you handle this? What's the upside to a tank like this? Well, for one thing, you have the benefit of the substrate which actively leaches minerals, organic materials, and other compounds into the aquarium. It also fosters the growth and proliferation of fungi, bacteria, and microorganisms, which not only facilitate processing of dissolved organics, but serve as a supplemental food source for our fishes. Now, my late season Pantanal tank, the one that I did, the water quality in that tank was really great. I had nitrate levels which were almost undetectable despite the presence of large quantities of decomposing leaves and other natural materials. This is consistent with just about every botanical style aquarium I've done. And the need to heavily feed my fishes, which resided in the aquarium, was really not that great. They continuously derived supplemental nutrition from the aquarium itself, similar to that leaf-only system, the leaf-litter-only system that I talked about some time ago. This is extremely similar to the benefits which the flooded grasslands and such provide in nature. Common threads indeed, right? And of course, it looks totally unique too. It's a very different type of aesthetic beauty than we're used to. It's an elegant, remarkably complex microhabitat which is host to an enormous variety of life forms. And it's a radical departure from our normal interpretation of how a tank should look. It challenges us not only aesthetically, it challenges us to appreciate the function it can provide if we let it. Functional aesthetics yet again. One of the things that we've noticed lately in the hobby, particularly in our sector, is a trend towards more realistic aquariums, not just systems which look like natural habitats, rather systems which are modeled as much as possible after the function of them. Functional aesthetics. The aquarium looks a certain way because of its function. A less rigidly aesthetically controlled, perhaps less high concept approach in the eyes of some, setting the stage for nature to do what she's done for eons without doing as much help to help it along. Rather, the mindset here is to allow nature to take its course and to embrace the breakdown of materials, the biofilms, the decay, 
and rejoice in this ever-changing aesthetic and the functional aspects of natural aquatic ecosystems, warts and all, and how they can positively affect our fishes. We've seen that not only do botanicals, leaves, and alternative substrate materials look interesting, they provide a physiological basis for creating a unique environmental condition or set of environmental conditions for our fishes and our plants. We're seeing fish graze on the life forms which live in and among the decomposing botanicals as well as the botanicals themselves, just like in nature. And we're seeing the influence aesthetically and chemically that these materials assert on the aquarium's environmental. Some of the next things that I see our community working on are further explorations into the understanding and replicating of natural water parameters and what the implications are for our aquariums. And I don't just mean soft acid water, I mean turbidity, um, high levels of uh, sediment, etc., etc. I also see more developments in trying to recreate some aspects of natural food change in our botanical style blackwater aquariums by facilitating the growth and reproduction of the aforementioned fungi, microorganisms, and even small crustaceans within our botanical beds and leaf litter beds. It's about expectations and understanding. If you're just looking for a cool aesthetic, that's okay. You simply need to understand what happens to botanicals when they're submerged in water, how they break down, what they do to the appearance and the environmental parameters of our tanks, what to expect. In the era of functional aesthetics, you're right in the thick of things when you play with this stuff. The common threads that connect these aquariums are their emphasis of form versus function. Sort of like if you set up the tank to, look, to work a certain way, it'll look different too. And with nature as our guide, we've got a pretty good track to run on. Stay inspired, stay excited, stay busy, stay engaged, stay creative, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.